Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today we'll be speaking with Judy E. Davidson, DNP, RN, FAAN, FCCM, and J. Randall Curtis, MD, MPH, about the newly released guidelines for family-centered care in the neonatal, pediatric, and adult intensive care units. Dr. Davidson and Dr. Curtis are the guideline co-chairs, and we are happy to have them with us today to dive into the recommendations and learn more about ICUs, learn more about how ICUs might implement them. So I'm going to start with Judy. Why was writing this guideline important? What can we hope to achieve from implementing the recommendations? Well, first I'd like to set the boundaries. The guidelines were focused completely on care of the families in the intensive care unit. And what we did is we took over 400 research studies in all and called out best practices related to care of the families in the intensive care unit. If these interventions, best practices are implemented, we have a chance at decreasing the incidence of post-intensive care syndrome family. And as a reminder, post-intensive care syndrome family is a constellation of negative outcomes that families may experience because of their exposure to critical illness. These adverse outcomes include anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, complicated grief for decedents and sleep disorders, difficulties with cognition because of sleep disorders, and the like. And it's more than what people first think about family satisfaction, much more than that. This is really about optimizing the health of our communities because millions of family members a year are exposed to critical illness. So a robust program in family-centered care can actually improve the health of the community, translating into the fact that uh, family-centered care, practicing family-centered care, is really a matter of public health. What is the difference between the new and the old guidelines and uh, how the 2007 family-centered care guidelines were developed? Were there any differences between these two? Uh, There's a lot of differences. First, the way guidelines are developed has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. We had to follow a strict set of CMSS guidelines to write the guidelines, but that didn't even exist when we first did the first family-centered care guidelines published in 2007. So we had a strict form of evidence analysis, the grade analysis that we used for looking at the experimental literature to see, um, to analyze it and determine how strong the literature was to support a given recommendation. But let me back up a minute. What we did in this guidelines that was very unique, that we created ourselves within this own work team, was to honor the qualitative literature in a new way, the qualitative and descriptive literature, the non-experimental evidence. We took six whole months to look at the qualitative and descriptive research to look at and find the voice of the consumer, the values of patients and families, and the values of clinicians about family-centered care. We listened to their testimony through the transcripts of interviews, the abstracts of this qualitative work, phenomenology, phenomenography, ethnography, and um, survey data, and looked at what was important to these people, our constituents in this process of family-centered care, both the patients and families and the clinicians. And from all that work, six months of work dissecting that information, we came up with key topics to focus on that we could then develop our questions to ask of the experimental evidence. So when you develop guidelines, you write PICO questions. They're framed up in population, intervention, comparison group, and outcome. If you do this versus this, will you be able to improve this? right? A PICO question. So we took the evidence from the qualitative literature, called out what were the most important outcomes that we should be focusing on, and then wrote the PICO questions. 
We also used direct voice of patients and families. So we had survivors of critical illness and family members enrolled in an IRB-approved study to inform the process going forward with the development of the guidelines. This was not done in the initial family-centered guidelines, and we received a little heat about that. We received criticism in 2007 that we did not get direct family feedback about what we had written about family-centered care. So we corrected it this time around. We weren't going to make the same mistake twice. We had a team of over 24 patients, survivors, and family members that critiqued our work at three different intervals. First, they rank-ordered the importance of the outcomes that we were looking to achieve, and we compared that to the rank-orders that our own work group rank-ordered these outcomes. And we found that we were pretty much in alignment with each other, that patients and families thought the same things were as important as we did. For instance, to put this in perspective, we had, if an intervention would save a doctor time, Is that as important as decreasing post-traumatic stress in family members? I think not, right? So we both family members and clinicians scored the outcomes associated with post-intensive care syndrome as the highest outcomes to achieve, the most important outcomes to achieve. Then we also had the patients and family members uh, review our work on creating definitions for family and family-centered care to make sure they agreed with our definitions. And we specifically reached out to the LGBTQ population to make sure that our definitions would work for them. Then we also had them review the topics, the key topics of interest, to see if we were missing anything. And when we reached out to this group of people that helped inform us in the process, we did make significant changes over time in our plans. So they gave us meaningful feedback. And I would never take on a project like this again without involving directly from patients and families getting their feedback. So the other differences, we didn't just extend, say, okay, look at what we wrote in 2007, and does that still work today? We started completely over again. So we asked new PICO questions based on that evaluation of the qualitative evidence and based on the feedback from our informants. So there were some things addressed in 2007 that we didn't even address on this one at all. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it wasn't as important or deemed as important right now as the other things that we did address. For instance, there's no mention of pet therapy in the new guidelines, right? It doesn't mean pet therapy shouldn't happen. It doesn't mean it's not important. We just didn't address it at all, okay? So that means it's left up to the local level to take those old recommendations that were mentioned in 2007. Someone locally, if they would like to know if pet therapy should still happen, should take the literature that's been published past 2007, make their own evaluation, and make an internal decision on what to do according to that recommendation. So we're not saying it's wrong. We just didn't address it because due to time constraints. The other, I would just add the other thing, Judy's mentioned the increased rigor that we used, the involvement of the qualitative research, and the involvement of family members in the guidelines. And the other category that I would add is that a fair amount of the data, the evidence that we reviewed, has actually been published since the 2007 guidelines were done. And so it also, I think, is a much more robust set of guidelines just because the literature, the evidence is stronger. We also had a methodologist assigned to our work group. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't happen in the past. So someone that's an expert in evidence analysis, and that person served as quality control officer for the group. He reviewed all of our work that we did under, independently as experts and clinicians and made sure that we kept true to the process of the grade uh, evidence analysis that was used to score the experimental evidence. We also had a librarian assigned to us. She was a volunteer from UCSD Medical Center, and she actually did additional training on her own for systematic review to make sure that she was fully skilled and prepared to take on this work of advising us with the systematic review and pulling the literature properly. 
You might uh, not know this, but librarians on these work groups often feel lonely. They're the only person that can do their work, whereas you might have 15 doctors and 10 nurses and a pharmacist, right? You've only got one librarian. So she actually sought a colleague of her own outside of the work group to bounce things off of for quality control on her own work with a systematic review of the uh, literature, pulling that literature for us in a proper manner. So it's really important to have a good yeah. librarian, right? Oh, yes, it's for all these things. You this cannot, is... you cannot do this any longer without a, a, a librarian. Yeah. A librarian and a methodologist and as a methodologist. well, because yeah. the, the methodology of, of yeah. the grade approach to to reviewing and scoring the literature, I think, is pretty complex, and it's it's important to do it well. So yeah. that's a good message for budding researchers. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, and it's an opportunity for budding researchers too because I think these society guidelines need people who are trained in the grade methodology to review evidence. And there are ways to get that training and, and develop an additional skill set. I think it should be mentioned there are no consensus statements in these guidelines. All of the recommendations are born from evidence, whereas in the past, guidelines were developed by getting 10 wise men in a room. Everybody talked about their clinical experience. They all agreed on what they thought was best, and then they voted, and it became a recommendation. That's no longer done. It's purely born. The recommendations are purely born from the evidence. So what recommendations have been carried on, or are there in the new guidelines from the old guidelines? So I think a lot of the, the number of the topics did persist, things like family presence in the ICU, family presence for resuscitation, uh, along with a supportive staff person to liaise with the family and support them through the resuscitation. Things like developing a systematic strategy for communicating with families and conducting family conferences. Those are the, some of the areas where I think the recommendations persisted, but also got a little bit more specific because of additional new evidence, as well as the rigor with which we reviewed the evidence. Yeah, I think if we go even to, Randy, to the family conferencing. What I had hoped to see when we opened this new chapter up on family-centered care was that in 2007, we recommended family care conferences happen. We knew that they should happen, but we had no evidence at that time and best approaches towards it. But now we have some evidence of best approaches towards how to do the conference, right? So the evidence is evolving one step at a time. If we're not doing family conferences at this point, it's probably wrong. (laughs) We do need more research on best approaches, but we have some evidence now to support specific approaches to conferencing that did not exist back in 2007. So what, on on the same lines, what new recommendations are there in these guidelines? So there are a a number of new areas. We've gotten more specific around, as Judy said, around how to conduct family conferences and what the evidence shows about that. We have also gotten more specific, and there's more evidence about the use of consultations to support family members, including palliative care consultation, ethics consultation, as well as involving other members of the ICU team, social workers and even psychologists as well. So we've gotten uh, much more specific about those because of the rigor approach and because the evidence has has improved. I think one of the biggest things that we're looking at is recommending the use of family diaries. This is a practice that has been very common in the Netherlands and Europe, but in the United States there's been a slow uptake because of what I call the what-if principle. Many clinicians are afraid that people might use what's written in these diaries for litigation and uh, use uh, that 
these messages of hope and caring against us, right? This hasn't been borne out in other countries. It hasn't been a problem there. And the, there's only evidence of benefit and no evidence of harm in the literature. So the use of diaries will be relatively new in the United States. There's only a small cluster of ICUs that are using them now, and we hope to see that increase into the future. The diaries are used to help. It's not like replicating the medical record. It's a new approach towards communicating caring, hope, positive messaging to the families and help fill in the gaps where they may they may need to explain to the patient later once they recover about what happened during their stay. So to complete a factual narrative that can help the family member later say to the patient, this is what happened and this is why you might have that unusual memory. What really happened was you went to the CT scan or what really happened was, oh no, you weren't um, in a prison. You had to have your hands tied down so you didn't pull out your breathing tube. So the transparency of the messaging of hope and uh, caring that staff write into these journals with the family members, we feel that it actually decreases your risk to be open and transparent about caring and caring practices. There is some evidence in the literature that the staff that participate in writing in diaries actually it brings them back to the primary purpose when they, why they went into healthcare to care for people, not just the machines and the technologies and the drips and the tubes and the ventilator, but actually to care about people. And it, um, it may have a positive effect on the staff as well as the patients and families. In any case, I think the diaries is one of the newest of the recommendations to come out. So I'm, I'm relatively new to the diary system. In our ICUs, we, I think we need a lot of improvement on this. I think a lot of ICUs do, right, for family-centered care. So how, do you, how would you guys propose on implementing diaries in ICUs that are new to this approach? Yeah, well, you know what we did? This is, this is also, we think we are the first group to have done this. But we took a parallel team from the Patient Family Education Committee of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and simultaneously to writing the guidelines, as soon as we knew we had recommendations kind of in place, we passed those over to the committee and they developed, they went out to the internet and to the literature, went through all the references that supported the recommendations and found translation tools that have been tested by others and put them together in a nine-page document so that if you decided you wanted to implement diaries because your unit hasn't done that yet, you could look at this work tool and it would tell you exactly where to go to find out how to do it. So we have the references, the translation tools for units to use all set up in advance. The translation tools are all on the iculiberation.org website for the, from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and they uh, were released at the same exact time as the guidelines so that you don't have to find those things yourself. You can open up the document and look, I want to I implement open, flexible family presence. This is where I can go for help on that. I want to start diaries. This is where I can go for help on that. And the studies of ICU diaries have taken some different approaches in terms of who writes in them. So uh, sometimes it's uh, the ICU clinicians. Sometimes it's the clinicians and the family as well. And then also what you do with them afterwards. And that's where this work tool that Judy's talking about is so helpful is you can go and you can look and see what different studies did. Some gave them to the patient. Some gave them to the family. Sometimes there was someone to sit down with the family or patient and go through it and sort of explain it. Sometimes not. And so you can sort of look at the evidence, look at what studies did, and then incorporate it into your ICU. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. Like the uh, care conferencing was in the past, we're at the point where we know diaries are probably helpful, right? All evidence shows benefit, no harm. However, we don't know the best approach right. yet. So we hope that in the next 10 years, uh, we'll be able to cultivate more research to determine best practices at how to implement the diaries. And I believe there's a video online that shows... 
implementation of diaries and implementation um, of... Yeah, is a site that was built out of the UK that helps with the use, specific use of diaries. We also have, uh, you may be referring to the work tool that we developed to help ICUs figure out where to start with family-centered care. Right. Right. So instead of coming out with a bundle like the sepsis bundle, all right, or A B C D E F, right? We don't have a rigid bundle of where each organization should do this, 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 and this, or you're wrong. Right? We did not do that. Instead, we listed our 24 recommendations and then weighted them according to the importance of the outcomes they should produce. So if this intervention should reduce post-traumatic stress in families, it was seen as a more important thing to look at first than something that had a less important outcome associated with it from the scientific evidence that supported that intervention. And we had a team build a gap analysis tool on low technology, right? just an Excel-based format that's pre-programmed with weighted scores and you score on a Likert scale whether or not you have this intervention in place in your personal ICU, yes or no, right? Then at the end of that, uh, after you score each intervention according to the Likert scale, you flip to the second page and it'll tell you your top five opportunities for improvement. And then you take one more step. You just, around your table of ICU clinicians, maybe at an ICU meeting, in less than an hour you can do this. You take your top five uh, opportunities and discuss possible barriers to implementation and then reorder those top five again. Maybe select a couple that you're going to work on right away to be able to develop an ICU-specific or organization-specific action plan for change. And I think this is really important because you know, there are over 20 recommendations. No ICU could simultaneously implement all of those. Some ICUs are already doing some of them. And so I think the tool that Judy is talking about is really important for translating these recommendations into practice because it's going to be ICU specific as to which rise to the top two or three that you want to start with, both based on what you're already doing and based on the care that you're providing in the ICU now and and the greatest opportunities for improvement. Great. So which direction do you think research would be going or which direction do you think this research should go in the future? Yeah. So I think one of the most important things about that came out of this guidelines is that it was a very comprehensive review of the existing evidence. It that comprehensive review of existing evidence allowed us to make a number of recommendations. But it's important to point out that all of the recommendations we made were weak recommendations. The grade system allows you to rank both the strength of the recommendation and the quality of the evidence. Recommendations are either strong or weak, and then evidence, the strength of the evidence can be uh, very strong, strong, low quality, and very low quality. And what we found is that all of our, the, the, the quality of the evidence, existing evidence, didn't allow us to make any strong recommendations. They're still valuable, and, and we still believe that implementing them will improve family outcomes. But I think what it really does is opens up a roadmap for future research where we really need evidence to move our recommendations into the strong category and to develop and evaluate new interventions that are coming along to support family members of critically ill patients. Yeah, so I think the important message from this, they they are best practices, even though the recommendations may be made from a low or very low level of evidence. 
They are the best practices we know today, but we need future research to have more confidence in these interventions and to determine the best way to deploy them, most of them. In the guidelines, uh, that very last page of the guidelines is an appendix that has a, a large list of areas for possible future research. That list is not exhaustive, but if you'd like to start researching issues related to family-centered care, I'd turn you to that appendix, scan through it, see what hits your fancy, and start up on any one of the number of topics that are listed there. Great. Thank you. I think this was enlightening for me. Family-centered critical care. Uh, so we, um, we in our ICU try to do a lot of stuff that's mentioned in your guidelines, but diaries to me is a relatively new thing. So I think that is something that I'm going to definitely take back and try to implement. In the United States, I think 99% of the ICUs, probably that, that will be a brand new idea. We'll all be starting together on that one. <laughs> yeah, and I see David's name in your uh, stuff here. So David is a colleague at, in the neurointensive care unit, so I know. David Maybe. led the task force. David Wang from Yale New Haven led the task force on developing the work tools for translation associated with the guideline. We really appreciated his support through the whole process and his great leadership. Great, great. Thank you. Anything else you got you would want to add? I would just add that I think that this area of practice has changed a lot in the last 10 years. I think 10 or 15 years ago, most ICUs didn't consider caring for the family to be an important part of their responsibility. And I think that's really changed for a number of reasons. One is we know that family outcomes of having a critical loved one are very important and that family members are left with a lot of this psychological symptoms and and stress that makes up the post-intensive care syndrome family. I also think it's important to support families in order that they can be involved in shared decision-making because we do involve family members a lot in the ICU in shared decision-making when patients aren't able. And I think providing them with emotional support allows them to play that role more effectively and have that role have less of an impact on their mental health down the line. And then thirdly, I think the other thing is that that family members are the ones providing care for these patients if they do get out of the ICU and, and get out of the hospital. And I think having supporting them and ha- allowing them to do a better job of caring for the patients will actually ultimately improve patient outcomes. So I think it's been exciting for me to be part of this and see how the evidence has grown, but also seeing how much more work we have to do to really understand how to improve these outcomes for patients and their families. I think um, one of the points I'd like to make in closing is that we're really shifting away from thinking about families as visitors to being families as true members of the healthcare team, as partners in the healing process, and even taking away or retiring the word visiting from family. Not family visiting, but family presence, family engagement, shifting in that direction. Yeah, I remember uh, during my fellowship, we would always have a family member part of rounds, and I still do that. But this is more taking this to the next level, I think, so yeah. I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. And um, again, thank you, Dr. Davidson and Dr. Curtis, for being here and volunteering your time, talking to us about what you're passionate about. And uh, this concludes another edition of the Critical Care Podcast. For iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Deshpande. Thank you. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education.
Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.